Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Kroc School's dedicated community fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. Interesting. Okay. Is that an earthquake? You're an earthquake. <laughs> Sorry, we can keep rolling. Because can't deal with a fart. Nothing can. <laughs> I'm very concerned for that person. Where's your showmanship? <laughs> Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Coco. I'm Scott Lewis, the CEO and editor-in-chief at Voice of San Diego. And I'm joined, as always, by the managing editor, Andrea Lopez Villafana. What's up, Lopez? Hey, Lewis. How are you? Doing good. Reporter Jacob McQuinney's here, as always. Hello, Jacob. Hey, Scott. News Radio 600 Coco was particularly fast today. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Breaking and, new speed records. And senior investigative reporter Will Huntsbury is joining us as co-host as well this week. What's up, Will? Yes, I'm here. Good to see you all. (laughs) Coming up on the show this week, Monica Montgomery Stepp has made history. She is the first black woman elected to the San Diego County Board of Supervisors. She'll fill the rest of the term vacated by Nathan Fletcher. Now, who will fill her role on the San Diego City Council? We'll discuss it. And the local political world is still reeling from the charges filed last week by District Attorney Summer Stephan against Jesus Cardenas, And Andrea Cardenas will update you on the latest. Finally, Will published a huge story this week. He found that many supposed volunteers were actually being paid for their work at concession stands at big San Diego venues. You might remember the nonprofit that didn't exist. Well, who volunteers for a nonprofit that doesn't exist? Well, maybe they were being paid. And he found that many were being paid below minimum wage and under the table. He's going to explain what he found and how big this story may get. It's going to be a good show. Stay with us. Okay, you might remember back in March, we had some fun with the other Andy and you, uh, Andy uh-huh. Lopez, mm-hmm. uh, about this story that had come out. So there was a lot of people buzzing about this study that was done by these Where's academics uh-huh. about downtowns and whether they'd recovered from the pandemic 
They were using a unique measurement. They used pings from cell phones. Interesting. And they're like, San Diego is doing great. It's got the pings. It was highly ranked as- (laughs) Popping off. As having recovered. (laughs) And locally, the, the- the, the establishment was stoked. Like, <laughs> they're like, "Yeah, our downtown rocks." Uh-huh. Remember, they were so excited. They, you know, they put out some press releases. They got excited about, it. and CBS News nationally came to visit. Wow! Percent. San Diego's downtown rebound is something of an anomaly. Many major cities across the country are still struggling to entice people back to the urban core, but not here. We know that thanks to cell phone data. We were able to collect about 18 million pings that we were able to look at over time. You have an idea of what the mix is here in San Diego? We're more balanced. You know, we have over 30,000 residents in downtown, and our city's plans envision having more than 90,000 residents downtown. The city also made hard decisions. So Todd Gloria was stoked. Like this is, he's just very excited. <laughs> Leading the charge. He's walking around Little Italy with a cup of cappuccino. <laughs> And his his friend, the reporter from CBS News, is walking with him, and they're talking about how great Todd Gloria is and downtown is. It's just, they're all riding high. And then there's the Voice San Diego podcast that week that's like, hold on a second. Downtown, there's some good aspects. We live here. We, we, or we, we live nearby. We, we, we work here. You know, we're, we're around downtown a lot, and it's, it's got some issues. Yeah, full recovery was not exactly the vibe. You did a story it's like you had just done a story, you and uh, Lopez here, Will. Yeah, about some difficulty people were having getting police to respond to some really gnarly things. Yes, it it just didn't feel like it was matching up. Well, I mean, with this the reality this, of downtown every this day. This story clearly did not like pass the smell test, and it's shocking to me that any elected official would do a victory lap. In, in this context. You can tell the downtown partnership was kind of like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah, it's good. It's good data. You did good data. I, I am proud to say our friend Andy Keats followed up, uh-huh. and the researchers have changed since then. Really? They, they updated their research because one of the problems with their research was that they included cell phone data from the airport <laughs> because San Diego, I don't know if you've noticed, the airport is bizarrely close to downtown. It's a really terrible yeah. reality. It's, I know, it's kind of cool when you go to the airport. Though. It's kind of good. It's just really weird. <laughs> Turns out a lot of pings coming from the airport. But, <laughs> but people not actually going to downtown. They're just like staying at the airport. Right. So they're in the airport. They're, they're transiting. They might be going to Rancho Bernardo after it or Rancho Penasquitos or one of the other ranchos. Or like anywhere else in the country. Any, yeah. This is amazing. But they, but they, so, so this time they've updated. Karen Chappelle, the project lead at the School of Cities who did this study, uh, had said, the airport may indeed account for a disproportionate share of the activity. What? They've updated the methodology and now San Diego despite being an anomaly, is in the middle of the pack. Yeah, it, it, went down. <laughs> it went down from like eight to 20. Dude, that victory lap was so good, dude. Everyone was just clearly so pumped. So does the CBS guy come back and do another story? Like, I'm going to go actually, with you. It's just mediocre. Your town sucks. To come, ba- to come back and actually yourself would be a very brave move, but one that I think he should do. 
<laughs> the so Andy Keats did this piece in Axios, sort of. Uh, you, you could tell he was excited to update <laughs> from yeah. the bit from the bit we'd run. And he he said, uh, "We are still though ahead of San Francisco and Portland." <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you've been to Portland recently, but like half of downtown is still just boarded up, so that's not a surprise, <laughs> really. At least the last time I was there. I often miss Andy's rants, and I think this would have been a good one. Yeah. To like, this would he have really been a good held moment. back. He's like, "I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna challenge the data," but <laughs> he loves the data. <laughs> we'll accept the data. There's some things to to deal with with downtown i will say that does seem like a pretty big oversight including the airport in the first place well deciding like how well a place is doing by one data point alone which is cell phone data is clearly has a lot of room for error yeah yeah, yeah. i think I, it makes sense right the activity but there's, sure there's, but you should look for big sources turns out if you have an airport downtown though that'll really skew the finding but also i mean how many people are just going through downtown on the trolley or like driving Uber or I mean. Or homeless in downtown. <laughs> what did what was Todd's explanation for why we're popping off so much? We blended our homes with our offices oh, better. Oh, we did mixed use better. We that did. was what it was. Nice. Yeah. I had not seen this story before I came into this studio. And this is <laughs> so funny. <laughs> so, uh, hey, you know, middle of the pack's good. Not bad. That sounds more accurate. Let's send yeah. out a press release about being solidly in the middle of the pack. <laughs> America's 20th finest city. <laughs> you guys did the uh, Monica Montgomery steps into office. That was headline. Jacob. I'm sorry. At she first I through. deleted it and then I was like... <laughs> You know, I'm feeling wild. <laughs> I I looked at that. And I'm like, no. <laughs> and then I was like, I, it kind of grows I can't, on you. I can't take that from them. <laughs> They're probably really excited. I, I, just, I wrote two I options. Back, he I, did. He I erased it, and then I said no, and then I put it back, and then I was like, I can't do this. Scott's been making a concerted effort to be cool lately, and <laughs> he has. I appreciate I've it. I've considered <laughs> being cool before, <laughs> so I let it go. Monica Montgomery steps into the super. Supervisor seat. Good job, you I guys. I was worried like someone was gonna, I don't know, email us something mean, but no the, one did. The so. city councilwoman Monica Montgomery steps. She represents District Four on the San Diego City Council. Now she represents District Four for the County Board of Supervisors, a much larger district, actually much less controversial uh, opportunity, much higher paying job. It's a quite a, it's a good gig nice. if you can get it. How much? Get, how much higher paid are they? Like fifty grand. Wow, or something I I haven't double checked. I they used to get about 150. Now the city council got a little bit of a raise from 70. Used to be double, and now it's like uh, it's like 50 percent more. And because they don't have to deal with the sort of uh, short the short term kind of acute land use dilemmas that that really plague city council decisions. I mean, 80 percent of what the city of San Diego deals with as far as public dis- debate is about what to build where. And the county board of supervisors have much less areas, hmm. much fewer areas that they have to make these decisions about, right? And so, frankly, they just don't make a lot of very difficult decisions. Now, during COVID, it was different. It got a little more intense, and mm-hmm. people figured out what the what the what the county does. But essentially, they they basically do decide all these big budget issues, social welfare. They're going to care a little bit more about homelessness, that kind of thing. But it's still under the radar 
role. Nobody knows what the county supervisors do. They go, if you're running for county supervisor, half your job is to tell people you meet what, what it does. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think about the rate? Anything surprised? She got about 60% of the vote. Mm-hmm. Amy Reichert, the Republican, got about 40%. All basically lines up with how the race went with Nathan Fletcher before. Same percentages, pretty much. Pretty much. Nathan Fletcher got a little bit more. Yeah, Yeah. Amy did a little better this time. But yeah, not not enough to change things. Now, she she put out a statement saying, we were outspent. We performed a little better than our numbers might indicate. Mm -hmm. That's all we really wanted to do. We're going to keep working on making a difference. So she didn't really want to win. No. (laughs) I mean, it seemed like it was going to be a cakewalk. It was a little bit of a cakewalk uh, you know monica montgomery step first black woman ever on the county board of supervisors i saw a picture of her tara lawson reamer and nora vargas mm-hmm. all like it was a pretty candid shot mm-hmm. it was a good shot and it was kind of cool it's like oh the democratic majority on the county county board of supervisors is like all women yeah like a black woman a latina a white woman it was like oh this board has changed immensely yeah. even in the years that i've been reporting in yeah. san diego because it used to be like five white republican dudes right well, well they weren't all dudes there was a woman well and she's only woman, she's right? only the second <laughs> black supervisor ever right leon williams <laughs> yeah leon williams he was yeah. the, he was the first black supervisor in the 80s yeah so we'll have a lot of questions about what she's gonna try to do on the board is is nora vargas gonna remain chair are they gonna rotate it around a little bit uh what kind of priorities does she bring she she talked a lot about wanting to keep the focus on criminal justice reform, on uh, accountability. The police went hard to try to stop her from winning. Does she, uh, you know, still push that agenda forward there? Does she hold off? Obviously, she doesn't care what they think (laughs) anymore. (laughs) I mean, she cares about the the employees, but Mm -hmm. as far as the interest groups and what they were trying to pressure, uh, you know, she's she's certainly not accountable or not beholden to anyone like that. So uh, I'm sure the the public employee unions, the the SEIU and some of the other supporters are pretty stoked about this situation. Um, but there'll be a lot of big decisions going forward. And, and the county is, is now, like we talked about, much more in the spotlight than it was before about homelessness issues, behavioral health and all those. And it is a very quick rise to, to you know, a seat that's has a lot of power. I mean, even if it is sort of under the covers kind of power, uh, what she was first elected in 2018 and five years later, she is one of, you know, the five board of supervisors members. I mean, that's, that's, that's very quick. I had, I had an, a consultant tell me the other day that the, the, that Nathan Fletcher we, up or down, whatever you think about him made the counties a lot more cool mm-hmm. for these politicians. And they think of it as a lot higher status now Yeah, as a lot, has a lot of potential, a lot of money. And it's just a, it's a m- more, highly valued position than it was before. Yeah. Yeah. Now, so that brings up the question of who runs in her place to, to take the county or the city of San Diego's spot. I know of a few potential candidates. Uh, So the mayor's office has one of their employees, Chida Rebecca Warren Darby. She's the daughter of Dr. John Warren, the publisher of the voice and viewpoint. She published the voice and viewpoint, the African-American newspaper in Southeastern San Diego, uh, been around like 65 years or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, they, uh, She's been considering running. She put up a cryptic uh, Facebook post a, a couple months ago saying like, the rumors are true, oh. but Wait, that's it. Was it a soft launch? Yeah. Soft Interesting. Launch. Speaking uh, of soft launches, we, we have... I don't know at this point, maybe 15, 16 soft launches from Shane Harris. Yes. Community yes. activist yes. and reverend. Yeah. Yes. yes. So the Reverend Shane Harris, 
Uh, he has made it clear he wants to run mm-hmm. softly. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I, given the number of soft launches, I think we can consider it a hard launch at this point, right? Yes. Now, I think a lot of the establishment would get behind uh, Warren Darby, except there might be another candidate, Henry Foster. He's the chief of staff for Monica Montgomery's staff right now. Interesting. And it's undetermined. I haven't heard yes or no whether Henry's going to jump in or not. If he does, it sets up a really interesting Todd Gloria world versus Monica Montgomery step right. world in that race. Right, because she would support her chief of staff. I'd assume. Yeah. Uh, I, I, and I think there has been some rivalry and tension between Monica Montgomery step and the mayor's office, and <laughs> this would be like a pretty polarized right. race. Right, and then who's got more juice with the Democratic Party? Who's got more juice with the unions? In the district. That may break differently. But also, yeah. I mean, District 4 has been a place where where you know dark horse upstart candidates Monica have been Montgomery able to make their name. Was exactly that exactly herself, right? I mean, her her election was a shock to many of the in the political establishment. Yeah, yeah I remember we only detected it when we went to the voices of the voters and and asked people on election day in the mm-hmm. primary mm-hmm. Uh, about what they were feeling and and detected at that moment. Oh my gosh, there's a lot of enthusiasm for Monica Montgomery Step. She beat her in the primary. The the incumbent Myrtle Cole. But then they had to go to the runoff and, and then decisively won in the runoff. It was yeah. just a, a fascinating um, evolution of, yeah, she used to work for Myrtle Cole, quit after some comments about police and racial profiling, uh, and, racial profiling and then and then got in. Yeah, so uh, I, get, I think there, she used to get into some really interesting fights about education issues as well. Right. Um, she has, I think she's taken a little bit lower profile for the last year and a half or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll see what she does when she moves to the county. That's what I'm very curious. Like, what version of Supervisor Montgomery step are we going to get? Uh, because, you know, there have been periods on the council where she was not afraid to call a lot of people out. And, you know, those were fun times. I'm going to be honest. I like it when politicians do stuff like that. I'm <laughs> sorry, I'm showing my bias here. But, you know, when they do things and they say things that are interesting. It was like, pop off. I mean, yeah, that's generally cool. when politicians just like, do things that's pretty cool my guess is that she will be very outspoken and i think at some point you know if maybe her and nora talk about taking turns with the chair i think that would be really cool Mm. and i think she will be very outspoken if she does get into that role but we'll see but that's my sort of guess just from spending some time talking to her Mm -hmm. you know the the one thing we haven't touched on though was that this was very much a political like election you know whether or not montgomery step one uh, would have shaken up the balance of of the board of supervisors in a really significant way. With with Nathan Fletcher's uh, vacating the seat, it became deadlocked at this two two Republican Democratic mm-hmm. um, you know balance, and so her win uh, allows Democrats to continue to control that board until so, next year. Is Tara Lawson Reamer has the tightest seat, Scott? Yeah. yeah, and she's facing the race from Kevin Faulkner. Kevin Faulkner, former yeah. mayor. Big of San name Diego. recognition. Yeah, and and they're they're banking on the fact that he has better name recognition than even the sitting incumbent just mm-hmm. because like I talked about earlier, people have no idea yeah, under what the, radar. the county board has done and she, her district changed quite a bit. Now it it reaches all the way down to Coronado. It used to be more concentrated in Escondido and Encinitas. Now it's all along the coast from, you know, Encinitas all the way down to uh, Point Loma and Coronado. So it's a much different district. And it's an area that Kevin Faulkner himself represented as a city council. And then, of course, as a 
uh, a mayor. So I mean, are yeah, there any that, tea leaves that, that you you've been reading lately about how how that may shake out? Well, they wouldn't be putting as much money and effort into Kevin Faulkner's uh-huh. race as they are if they didn't think he has a pretty solid chance. And they would all say they they do. Now, it's still an advantage for Democrats. It'll be a very polarized election. He's got a lot of vulnerabilities. He lost the Chargers. He's got the 101 Ash Street. His buddy made $10 million on a really corrupt deal. Yeah. He The skydiving center that he sold uh, or that he bought urgently to help homelessness. There's a lot of things you can attack Kevin Faulkner on. And I think she she comes from a political consultant family. Like they're ready to yeah. to do that. He's going to run though. I mean, he he. I think he's made. He's going to run on. I did something about homelessness and it was working. Now, whether people buy that or not is a different I, story. But so that is going to be his big thing in running for governor. Yeah, Isn't clearly that, that didn't doing? work when he ran that for governor. Like yeah, but the governor's race was a lot more complicated. Trump was involved. How to navigate MAGA was involved. I don't, I don't, those complications will fall away a little bit. Not really. That's all no. she's going to do is point to, <laughs> yeah. like, he, su- <laughs> yeah. he supported Trump. Like, he, right. I mean, you have to imagine that 50% of the mailers are going to have that picture with him and Trump. Yeah. You know, they just kind of like make themselves. They do. The mailers. Yeah. Now that that said, she is probably the most vulnerable uh, up there. She's she's uh, uh, far, I think, a little bit more left than than the, the than the electorate. So you know, we'll see what they do and and how hard they hit her as well. So, yeah, that's going to be a fire, and that would just determine the balance of power on the on the race. And importantly, I think the biggest issue it would determine is how much homes you can build in the in the unincorporated area of san diego that's the big issue right and the truly like dynamic change that would occur under the current board they're they're shutting it down like they basically said like no develop in the back country not necessarily none but you're not going to get a lot of exceptions yeah it's it's funny the difference between like what actually is at stake versus what the messaging will say is at stake. Exactly. Building yeah. in the back It'll country be is, all about Trump is not a sexy issue. We need less homes in the in the rural areas of San Diego. It's not something that's going to mobilize a bunch of voters, right? Well, it'll no, but that'll be that's the one of the biggest things you can point to. Absolutely. So this week, Chula Vista Mayor John McCann and City Councilman Jose Preciado. Uh, called on Andrea Cardenas. She's the city councilwoman in Chula Vista who was accused last week by the district attorney of multiple counts of fraud, money, money laundering, and other issues with regard to a paycheck protection program loan that she had taken along with her brother, Jesus Cardenas, uh, during COVID. Uh, one of these forgivable loans that you get for keeping people employed. And they said that she did that and that he did that uh, fraudulently, that they actually didn't have the 34 employees that they said they had. And those 34 employees, in fact, worked for a, a marijuana distributor, a facility in San Diego. And these guys have now called on her to resign because of these charges. And she texted us, basically, give me a chance to defend myself. And I'm not going to resign right now. So that's the situation there. Jesus Cardenas, her brother, who's also accused of of most of these similar crimes, has uh, also said he can't talk about it, but he looks forward to the chance to defend himself. So this is going to be an interesting one because of the absolute massive way, uh, sort of network, web 
of connections that these two have with Democratic politicians across San Diego. Uh, they've helped so many of them get elected. They've had clubs that they've created. Uh, they've got uh, all kinds of spending that they've done on behalf of the Democratic Party, work they've done on behalf of the Democratic Party, lobbying they've done on behalf of all kinds of entities across San Diego. And I, I think that this is just getting started as far as how big this is. You think it, you think it could, you think their charges could ripple out beyond the Cardenas siblings? I, I feel like this, this might be the start. I have no idea if there's more charges coming, but it feels like this is, this is a tip of the iceberg if they're interested in going deeper. Now, maybe they throw all this out and it all falls apart and they do deserve to be, uh, you know, innocent until proven guilty. They have the opportunity to defend themselves. And I do want to hear what their defense is. Like part of the, uh, the charges include this idea that she, they took this loan and she took $30,000 of it and, and put it basically into her campaign to run for city council in Chula Vista. That's a pretty blatant misuse of that, those, those funds, uh, and you know that that kind of thing is pretty serious. So that's just one issue. Now, I, I think the reason that this gets bigger is let's take this issue for example that uh, I've been poking around. Our staff poked around on this a few months ago. I've been trying to pick it up. So in 2021, late 2021 and early 2022, the office of Stephen Whitburn, this is the city councilman in the city of San Diego, represents most of the downtown and central city area. He uh, was pushing rather urgently a, an amendment to the city's cannabis regulations. The amendment would have made it, frankly, a lot easier to put in dispensaries closer to schools and churches or churches, other sensitive uses where they were supposed to be 1,000 feet before, his change would make it 600 feet. Uh, they would also make a couple other changes, basically making it easier to put in uh, some of these dispensaries and such and facilities that support production of cannabis uh, issues and so or products. So they were pushing this forward rather urgently again and to the surprise of like the planning commission about right. how fast it was going and such. And when you pull back, you look like Stephen Whitburn at the time, his chief of staff was Jesus Cardenas. And Jesus Cardenas had, now we know, claimed these uh, employees who were at, a, at, at Harbor Collective that they had been uh, his employees, even though they're, they're working for a cannabis dispensary. And he, uh, he had claimed on his Form 700, his conflicts of interest form, that he was getting income from that collective and, and from two other uh, sources of, um, you know, cannabis sort of industry sources there. So he is getting money from the cannabis industry while at the same time in this office that he runs is pushing forward an urgent measure to change the regulations on cannabis in San Diego, you know, in a way that would benefit the industry tremendously. Yeah. And so it's like that kind of thing is going to be looked at, I think in a whole new light with these charges and with, with what's, with, uh, what's already come down. Did the changes they were proposing already go through or no, they didn't. Uh, uh, they got stalled and then, and I'm, I'm actually waiting for a response from Whitburn's office about why they uh, abandoned them. I mean, it's interesting, right? Because usually when we see that kind of thing, it's um, people donate to a camp, you know, lobbyists of a particular industry 
will donate a lot of money to a campaign. And then we're like, oh, that politician's pushing that issue. And they had all that money pumped into their campaign. In this case, Jesus Cardenas had the money pumped into his pocket because it was his personal business that was being paid out by cannabis. And at the same time, he's pushing these regulations that would be a lot better for cannabis. Uh, and um, yeah, it, it, it'd be real interesting to see how the city feels about that, that, that just to have somebody at the nexus of so many things and, and getting, getting paid and working on behalf of taxpayers at the same time. Well, it gets, it gets to the whole issue with both of them, that they were so involved on the advocacy side in politics while also trying to be involved and juggle the responsibility of the public welfare as public servants, either as chief of staff to the city council office or as a, a literal elected official in Chula Vista. And so that balance, like, yeah, I, I suppose you can juggle those two responsibilities, but uh, but it can get really hairy. And if you start to look at a lot of those things with, uh, you know, a microscope, a law enforcement microscope, it could be pretty gnarly. Like uh, Ralph Nzunza spent two years or so in jail, in prison, federal prison, after he was accused of trying to water down stripping uh, rules, right? That, uh, you know, the idea that strippers could do lap dances and such in the uh -huh. city of San Diego. And all that the connection that they had was that he was, uh, you know, he had, he had given advice and, and tried to help the, the lobbyists involved for, for actual like campaign donations. Uh -huh. There was, there was no like quid pro quo, even close to what like, like, you know, you could probably reveal in these cases. And so I think and like, he did two years on that or he did some time. Yeah. The, the, the prosecution against, um, the other one, Michael Zuckett was thrown out. Uh, but Ralph and Zunza, yeah, served in federal prison. Wow. Getting a PPP loan for employees that do not work for you, but seem to work for a company you're consulting for. Am I getting that right? Just yeah. seems if proven true, seems just so blatant and mind boggling. <laughs> Pretty brazen. But that you I, keep, they kept the money. But they kept the money. I mean, that just is, I, I <laughs> that's like kind of hard to, to to square in my head i just it genuinely seems so brazen that i i it's hard to and at the same time you're a major political figure on the scene you know and you ultimately become chief of staff for a city council person in jesus's case well i think so we're gonna have to figure out like what what the fallout is does she stay in that office uh does uh are there more charges to come are there more law enforcement agencies uh, coming after it. Will other people start to be implicated? Will they start to turn on other people? How far does that, uh, do the dominoes fall? Uh, we'll have to stay tuned, but we'll be following it here at Voice San Diego. We're going to take a quick break. On the other side, Will's big investigation into the shadow labor force running concession stands in venues across San Diego. Stay with us. Join culture creator Remel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. 
Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. So not too long ago, we did a piece, Will Huntsbury here did a piece about a nonprofit that was providing volunteers to work at concession stands, mostly in Petco Park, but we later discovered also in Snapdragon Stadium, the new stadium. Yep. And it was part of an old program where nonprofits could staff some of these concession stands, take 10% of the revenue at the concession stands to support their public service. And... The volunteers would do that work for them, and the 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 concession company and the and the sports venue, the stadium, or the team would benefit because these hard to staff stands would would be staffed by these volunteers. Win win. But what you discovered was that that nonprofit didn't exist. What wasn't real? Chula Vista, Chula Vista fast pitch Patch. Uh, was not <laughs> was not providing any softball services to anyone. And so I think it provoked the question at that point of like, well, if they're not volunteering for a girls softball league, who are the people actually working at these stands? And now you have an update and it turns out that you have discovered and talked to a number of people who were supposed volunteers and these nonprofits, other nonprofits that were providing staffing for these uh, concession stands with supposed volunteers but they're getting paid. Yeah, we we just in this kind of new iteration, I was able to pin down that three different groups, one of them was Chula Vista Fast Pitch and two others, one called Humble Hands, one called Love for Haro. These three different groups were actually paying people under the table below minimum wage at most of the major venues in San Diego. Most of the major venues, this is like a significant chunk of staffing at uh, Chula Vista Amphitheater, at Petco Park. Uh, they were providing at Snapdragon Stadium. Some of them were providing staffing at the former Qualcomm Stadium that doesn't exist anymore. Some of them were previously at Sports Arena. Um, so, yeah, we. It, it turns out that first fake charity, shocker, no one was volunteering for them. They were paying people anywhere from 50 to $80. Um, and that's generally the standard that we found. I've even seen it as low as $40. Turns out under our noses this whole time, these volunteer groups were not all functioning the way you might expect a volunteer group to. Well, let's dial this back. So you talked to a few people for your story about how this all came about. Um, what's the what's the origin story for how this relationship between nonprofits and these major venues evolved. Sure, sure. So a lot of people, I certainly didn't know that volunteer group staff concession stands going into all this, but I they don't talked advertise to, it. Exactly. So Which how was, would we was know? Weird. <laughs> that was a little weird. Um, so I, I set about trying to figure out the origin of all that. And it turns out 
it started for good reason, you could say, with professional football teams, maybe back in the 70s, something like that. Professional football only has like eight home games a year. So how do you provide hundreds of concession staff workers for just like eight games a year and maybe a couple concerts? The idea somebody came up with was like, we'll get churches, we'll get youth sports, we'll get these people to staff it, and they'll get 10% of the take to take back to their church or youth sports league. And for eight games, that makes sense. You know, Voice of San Diego, we might could find enough volunteers to staff a concession stand for eight games. A lot of nonprofits could probably do that. Over the years, though, it, it wasn't just football. It started being basketball that has like 40-something games. It started being baseball. We're talking 81 home games. It started being concert venues to where this is just business as usual across the whole country is that volunteer groups and sometimes a lot of volunteer groups are providing the staffing for a great number of events in a year. And And what the venue insiders told me is that once you start over relying on those groups, like that is a system where abuse is going to creep in pretty easily. Yeah. So what we're looking at this Chula Vista fast pitch that we recover, that we uh, unveiled a few weeks ago was maybe just one particularly sloppy operation in a weird, large world of these nonprofits that are become, that have become essentially staffing services for these concession stands where the staff are being paid under the table and below minimum wage. You talked to actually some people who'd done this work and and they did see it as pay for the work. They didn't see what they were doing as volunteerism. No no one I talked to saw it as volunteerism. Love for Haro, I got their founder on the phone briefly and she told me, you know, well, well, yes, we pay some people who work and we consider that a donation. And some people work for us and we don't pay them, you know, and, and sometimes we donate people to money to to people who didn't work. But it, so it so it seems to be like some people are still trying to call this a donation. Like you, you come in and you work for seven hours at Chula Vista Amphitheater and I'll give you a donation for doing that. That's not exactly how donations work is what lawyers told me. You know? <laughs> well, let's let's get into that. So you did talk to some lawyers who who can help put some perspective on it. So if you're if you are a volunteer for a nonprofit, you can get your expenses uh, reimbursed, maybe a small stipend, but it crosses the line at some point. Yeah, yeah, it crosses the line at some point. You really can't give a volunteer a lot for working for you. You know, uh the notion of a $25 gift card comes that up a lot. Uh, that seems like it's probably just on the okay side of a stipend. Um, but then once you approach anything that gets even close to minimum wage, that's when you're like talking about labor for pay. I think one state, one state standard had it that like you should, it's got to be 20% of what minimum wage would be or less the stipend, just so that it's clear that that's not what people are coming for. We're giving you so little that it's clear you're not coming for that. You know what I mean? We're just trying to be nice. But if it's a transactional labor experience, then it needs to conform to labor law. That's exactly right. And, and, 
it's just so wild that this is something that we've all encountered and not known it. If you've been to a game at Petco, if you've been to a concert at the amphitheater, you didn't have any idea that there were potentially all these labor violations taking place. And, and yet here we are. So, you know, obviously your reporting was focused on San Diego, but also in your reporting, you found that this practice sort of originated, I think, in Detroit, right? And do you have a sense of how widespread of an issue this is? I mean, is this a San Diego thing that somehow magically transported itself over from Detroit? Or is this something that potentially is affecting, you know, is happening in, in venues and, and sporting events all across the country? I think it's certainly happening in other venues across the country. But I think if you keep, you if you limit the use of volunteers and you monitor those volunteer groups really heavily, all the consultants I talked to were like, it can work, hmm. you know? And I talked to a guy who dealt with baseball operations in uh, Miami. And, you know, he said that they used a really limited amount of volunteer groups. Hmm. And if that they had say 12 volunteer stands, they were probably working with like 36 different volunteer groups because oh, wow. they wouldn't expect any one volunteer group to bring staff for the whole season. And yet at Petco, you know, you had, at least uh, there are at least three different groups that provide that were providing staffing all season, if not more. Um, and so any stadium across the country where they have come to over rely on volunteer groups and aren't just using them in more limited circumstances, that that is a system that I think we can say for certain now is ripe for abuse. And so essentially if, and, and especially if they're relying on a small number of volunteer groups, right? If there are 40 volunteer groups pitching a person or two in that seems like a more like a system that that makes more sense right as opposed to three providing dozens of people each yes yes absolutely i what do the venues say because i just think this is so fascinating like anyone who's ever been a part of a nonprofit um or you know volunteered at something or is running some sort of thing where you need volunteers to come in like you know how hard it is to get <laughs> yeah. volunteers to come in. Oh, it's yeah. like pulling teeth, getting people to volunteer a couple hours to, you know, donate some things or come work an event. Like it's not easy. So it's kind of crazy to me that you would think like that no one would stop and think like, how the heck are these groups getting so many volunteers yeah. for every single concession stand that they're staffing mm -hmm. yes. and every single event that we have going on? Right. Like how did... Or maybe they have, but you know, like you would think someone would go, huh, where are they getting these people? <laughs> you know, and, and there's not, I don't know what venues know and what they don't know, mm -hmm. but what the incentive is, is to have all your shops open that there are enough fans in the stadium for. That mm -hmm. is the, that you need those stands open for sure. And Chula Vista Fast Pitch, we know they ran an average of a dozen stands a night. That's Jesus. according to Delaware North. We saw one. Yeah. It was popping. It did. It was popping. It was a Long huge line, stand. You had at least 12 stand. workers in there. It was like a ballpark eats like right by home plate. Yeah. And so, you know, we know they had some of the most high earning stands. We know they were providing several dozen employees uh, at least some mm -hmm. nights. And they, they did that for nine years. And- you would. Yeah. I mean, the people I talked to said, like, there is a way for this to be done correctly. All of them were like, that should be a major red flag. Mm. Well, so, let, 
Let's go into one of them. So Love for Hara, right? So this was the one you just mentioned. This was um, a, uh, a charity, I think, designed around the idea of like providing support for kids in youth sports. Uh, yes, yes. I, I think that's the idea is to donate money for youth sports, maybe even for giving them money so they can take the SAT because you have to pay a fee for that. Okay, but mm-hmm. a loose uh, sort of bevy of responsibilities and goals, right? yes. And they are, uh, uh, you have somebody who said they got paid from the group? In that case, we have a relative who told us they know that uh, the, the person who ran that was paying people. And we have some Venmo receipts. Right. So they are operating out of North Island Amphitheater in yes. Chula Vista. Yes. And Petco Park in 2022, we know. Okay. So you called North Island and, and Legends, which runs that. Now, Legends is a major corporation in this sort of sports entertainment world. Right. And you asked Legends for comment, and they came back and they said, uh, we've taken action. Yes, right? we've taken appropriate action, yes. But Live Nation, which is merged with Ticketmaster, they own the amphitheater, but they contract with Legends to run all the hospitality. And um, yeah, yeah, Legends, all they would say to me is that we've taken appropriate action. And I first reached out to them a couple weeks ago, then kind of just before deadline, they were like, we have taken appropriate action. I asked them what that means, and they didn't tell me. Um, does that mean they counseled? The, and they also didn't ever clearly say that volunteer groups could or couldn't pay their volunteers. You know, they they just kind of said they're supposed to uh, follow all applicable laws and the spirit of this volunteer program. So I, I'd like to also kind of drill down into these workers. Uh, so Chula Vista Fast Pitch provided dozens of people every game. Who were these people? Um, you know, if you walk around, you see it. It's a lot of high school age people. And mm-hmm. and of the workers I talked to, several of them had been in high school. Um, it seems like there are certain high schools, particularly in the South Bay, where like just a lot of kids know it's an option. Uh, Mar Vista, Sweetwater, Montgomery, you know, there's just kind of, you know, there's an endless workforce there if you can tap into it. Mm. And a lot of those workers, they told me, I don't necessarily want a part-time job where I have to like follow a certain schedule. Like with this, they could just kind of show up if they wanted to and they could make some cash. And, but it wasn't just that, you know, I had multiple different people tell me as well that like, um, immigrants who didn't have proper work documents also would do the end up doing this work because it's hard for them to find work Mm -hmm. and so this was like an easy way for them to make cash as well and not have to worry about it um so yeah i think you see a lot of high schoolers and i think you know you see people who sometimes don't have the right to work in the u.s currently and and you know some sometimes just other adults who need the work so we're talking about some of like the most vulnerable populations in our society. That's pretty chill, right? <laughs> That's right. The young people and people who need work so badly that they, they can be exploited. Yes. Yeah, yes. Perfect. Extremely vulnerable populations. So we asked uh, the city, you asked the city and they were like, kind of like insulted that it was considered their problem. Right. But why yeah. did you the ask city the city? <laughs> Explain why you asked the city. So I asked the city because the city is basically the owner of Petco Park and leases it to the Padres. And so I wanted to know what the city thinks and the mayor's office in particular thinks about 
labor violations going on on this city-owned property. And the statement I got back was that if you read section so-and-so of what governs this, you can see that the management of Petco Park clearly falls under the Padres' purview. That's yeah. that's what we got from the mayor's office. Then they asked me some follow-up questions about what I knew. I told them what I knew, and they they never responded again. And Snapdragon Stadium's owned by the, the university, the San Diego State University, and they said – they just took issue with your implication that they relied on this workforce, that uh, yes. the vast majority of the people who work for the for the concessions are employees of their own um, network of, uh, you know, concession stand operators. Uh, but they they did also have some of these groups uh, at Snapdragon. They did. Well. Humble Hands is there at Snapdragon as well. And um, they, they confirmed that Humble Hands had worked there and they didn't tell me what happened with humble hands and said, I should reach out to humble hands to find to, to, if I have any more questions. So we don't know if they're still at Snapdragon humble hands. I should say did not decline to comment the the founder of that group. Well, you can check out all of this and all Will's reporting at VOSD.org slash Will. Good job. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast recorded in San Diego that's also going to have its staff photo for the holiday season taken out in front of Petco Park. It is the most popular public affairs podcast recorded by a group of people that are going to do that. Subscribe to The Morning Report to keep up with everything we're following in local news and our latest stories. You can see that and our full lineup of newsletters at VOSD.org slash newsletters. That's VOSD.org slash newsletters. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice San Diego. Andrea Lopez Villafana is our managing editor. Jacob McQuinney is our education reporter. Will Hunsbury is our senior investigative reporter. And Nate John is our expert editor and producer. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hey.